When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm Mr. Anthony. This week to talk about Tyrion's subterfuge is my friend Arthur Jomfa. Until very recently, Arthur was a political science major at the London School of Economics. I think I have that right, Arthur. Sorry if I got that wrong. But we find him today in Taiwan where he's whispering because his flatmates are asleep. I kept them up past midnight to have this conversation. If you're wondering what Steve and I have been up to, we recently reviewed the film The Menu, which is a new film that you can watch on HBO Max, which I would call a psychological thriller, satire, leaning toward the horrific, but I wouldn't call it straight horror. So if you're interested in hearing us talk about The Menu, uh, check us out over at Cocoons of Horror. And then stick around for a while. Maybe you're interested in the most in-depth analysis you've ever heard of Superman 3. Or maybe you're interested to hear Steve talk about one of his all-time favorites, Gremlins 2. If you have any questions for me or Aaron, send those to book at baldmoon.com. Without further ado, here is my friend Arthur Jamba. Arthur, how do you feel about subterfuge? <laughs> Are you good at it? Are, are, do, do, do you do you condone it? Do you, do you admire people who? What kind of people are good at subterfuge? <laughs> well, people like Varys and Tyrion seem to be good at subterfuge. I know. I I think I have a, an idea of what subterfuge is. Yeah, because uh, I've heard it a few times in a few contexts, but I don't think I've heard it enough times to have a clear oh. definition of it. Did oh, you have good. one at hand? No, no, I'm happy happy to help. I don't know if you know this about me, but I I, I am a great lover of vocabulary. Yes, I do know this about you. And I, I love to learn new vocabulary. I'm a big uh, Scrabble aficionado. Mm-hmm. Just in case you didn't think I was a nerd already. <laughs> Deceit used in order to achieve one's goal. It's not just lying. It's lying with a purpose. Here's what um, Miriam Webster says. Deception by artifice or a stratagem in order to conceal, escape, or evade. Uh, so stratagem is, is sort of the key thing. It's not just deceit. It's deceit with strategy. Do you admire people who can do this? Are you yourself good at this? Um, yes, I think I have to to say I I um I am or at least I was quite good at subterfuge. Um, I think uh-huh. we all went through that period when we were growing up and trying to find out what morals were, and then we <laughs> had to grow out <laughs> of doing bad things. Um, I had I recently had a do you know the game Secret Hitler? Secret Hitler? Yes, Secret Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think we play Secret Hitler in America. Well, you know, I've seen I've seen Americans play it. So okay, it's, it's a board game. It's it's quite a nerdy board game. Um, but the point is, someone's Hitler, and you have to find who Hitler is, and okay. you have to stop them from winning. And whoever's Hitler is trying to to become uh, chancellor. Anyway, do you actually play it with a board, or is it just sort of like a parlor game? It's a it's a board. It's a, it's a fully like actual. Oh. game with a license okay. and a trademark it's not it's not like a well-known game although i think it's quite popular in germany funny enough <laughs> all right if you're listening from germany please let us know how popular secret hitler is in your country we need to know 
All right. So you're good at this game. <laughs> you're good. I at was this really. Game. So I was. Uh, unfortunately, for the first game, I was a fascist. Mm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was really good at convincing everyone I wasn't. Um, and when my friends found out I was, they were like, "That is scary. You are very good at that." Yeah, you're um, a very good fascist, Arthur. No, I'm not very good. At <laughs> I'm very good at subterfuge. Ah, I, in fact, um, when I was in primary school, I once did something that I'm not proud of. That is really, really bad. Mm. There was a, a bully and a bullied in my primary school. Okay, and I um I wrote on a piece of paper in the capital letters, so no one could know it was me. Okay. I hate you. <laughs> right and i and i uh put it on the i i didn't like either of them right i don't i didn't like the bully and i for some reason i didn't like the bullied guy either so i i wrote i hate you in capital letters i put it on the table of the the bullied guy and then he believed it was the bully that put it on because who else right yeah yeah and so he went to the principal and so the principal had them in the office it's like and then the bully went uh, completely crazy being I'm being framed by this crazy man. He wrote this himself and then he's saying I wrote it and then they both got suspended. <laughs> and I was very happy about that. And I genuinely to this day feel bad about this. Uh-huh. And that is a perfect representation of uh, of how I once was. So you're you're good at something that you feel a little bit ashamed about. Well, I'm, you know what? I haven't had much practice anymore, so I hope I'm uh, bad at it now. Okay. All right. Well, I'm very poor. I'm very bad at this. I'm not I'm not good at subterfuge. I don't think I'm a, a, a very good liar, for instance. I'm horrible with, like, gifts. Like, you, went, you know, when it's socially acceptable to be a liar, I'll be going out to, like, buy Christmas gifts for my family or, my, you know, my wife will say, where are you going? And I'll say... I'm going out to buy you a gift. <laughs> so stupid. Okay, so then, that doesn't feel like being bad at lying. That feels like being incapable of lying, which is just another not good. level. Of... Not good. Here's how. I, so in recent years, I've gotten a little bit better. I'll say something like, "I do not answer those kinds of questions at this time of year," which is the exact same thing. It's it's just I've that is the exact same thing. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not good. Not good at lying. Uh, not good at subterfuge. I do feel like I admire people who are good at this. I, I enjoy spy movies, like legit spy movies, not like 007 nonsense. I I feel like people who can do this well are like an odd breed of animal that I, I'm fascinated by. So that's just my sense of this. So I, I feel a, I feel a certain admiration for Tyrion and Varys in this chapter. You know what? That's very interesting because the thing that I want to talk about, the first thing that I want to talk about in this chapter is that I think this chapter kind of shows that Tyrion is maybe not so great. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. I, I get where you're going with that. Let me read the um, read my synopsis here. Yes, please do. Tyrion wines and dines Janoslint and cajoles him for information. After the ruse is over, Tyrion reveals that he intends to send Janos to the Wall. The new commander of the city's watch is outside waiting to take both Slint and his goon Alardim to a ship. Varys and Tyrion discuss riddles and power and treason. Then Tyrion talks to Bronn about his method for choosing swords. I uh, hope we get to talk about that. Tyrion then reflects that he has surrounded himself with murderers. So, um, Arthur, Jamfa, what do you bring to the table today? Tyrion slander. Slander? Yes. I will. Everyone says only nice things about Tyrion. Oh. Tyrion, but today... I'm coming to attack Tyrion. Okay, good. Yeah, this is going to make you the most hated man. I mean, mm-hmm. for someone who's good at secret Hitler, you're now going to be public <laughs> Arthur. And uh, you're going to be the, the most hated Arthur in the history of Arthurs. I'm, I'm going to ask that that does not become a thing. Thank mm. you very much. Public Arthur? Yeah. <laughs> it's totally going to become a thing. 
Um, yeah, so t- so lay it on me. Tyrion deserves all of your ire. Yeah, so I think we we tend to um, admire Tyrion because mm-hmm. he comes into King's Landing and he kind of this idea that he drains the swamp and he gets rid of all these people colluding and he actually does some good things because he takes care of the little people and Mm -hmm. saves the city from being invaded um, and such, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think Tyrion is a bit more self-calculated than that. He seems to be enjoying power quite a lot, uh, especially in this -hmm. this chapter. Um, He's having a lot of fun with Lord Janus Slint. Um, After he's done, he um sits down and just contemplates. He, yeah, he tells the people to clean everything up except the um the wine. He sits there just happy with himself. Mm-hmm. And at the end, right, 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 right at the end, I think is the most revealing. Right, he says, "Um, I have. Why would I ever need your Aladdin, Lord Slint?" I have a hundred of my own. And then he says he wanted to laugh. He wanted to weep. Most of all, he wanted Shay. So he succeeds in getting this power that clearly he craves. He succeeds and then it makes him a little bit horny in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna be devil's advocate here. Um so Tyrion knows he's in a dangerous place. He knows that having the the job hand of the king is a dangerous job. The last two have died untimely deaths, right? Mm -hmm. And he knows if he doesn't want to be the next one to die an untimely death, he needs to surround himself with uh, people who know how to do violence and do it well. And he knows that he has to play his cards correctly. And while it's a bit distasteful to him, he's willing to do it if it means that someone would who would kill a baby at the the, the mother's breast gets gets his just desserts. So Tyrion has kind of become a monster to do justice against worse monsters that that would be my i i think that's the best argument that you could make in this case um i think i would agree with that but there are there are times when it does feel like he's getting the kick out of out of the power that he holds over uh-huh. this man yeah, yeah. I mean, for example at one point he he kind of scares uh slint and then he he like says oh i'm gonna take your children i'm gonna put them here here and there and yeah. then Dana Slint is like, well, what are you going to do with me? And then he, the text says, Tyrion let the oath tremble for a moment before he answers. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So he's, he's really, really enjoying this a bit too much, right? <laughs> I think that there's um, a little bit of classism here. And maybe you can help me with this too. But um, I think that there's something, some subtext in this chapter that Lord Slint who is the son of a butcher, does not deserve his title. And, mm. you know, Tyrion makes sure you make sure you, I'm not a lord, says Tyrion. He says, hey, just call me Tyrion. And then he, but he continues to call him, you know, Lord Slint. I think that there's a little bit of resentment for someone of Tyrion's social status that someone like Slint could rise through the ranks and become a lord and think that he could deserve something like Harrenhal. And you could read this chapter as Tyrion like like sw- swatting away or smacking down someone who's up-jumped, right? Uh, someone who, who, who has sort of risen above their right rightful station. There's a tiny bit of joy that Tyrion gets by thinking, yeah, you, you thought you were you thought you were gonna be a lord. Now you're gonna be a man of the night's watch. Well, I I think another thing is that he keeps making fun of Slint for not being intelligent. Right. 
Well, well he's not. <laughs> Let's be well, honest yeah. about that. Jada is an idiot, right? But I think often, and, and you'll, you'll see this often when, I mean, I don't know if this happens to you, but this has happened to me. You, you go to a dinner with a lot of people from high society, mm-hmm. and then they'll start laughing and having fun and talk about these cultural things. And then they start making jokes about someone that maybe is not from such a high class mm. and how they don't aren't as intelligent. And uh, instead of understanding all these things they do about culture, they understand things that are, you know, not as valued to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, yeah, it's it's that kind of sense of, oh, let's make fun of idiots. Oh, yeah, but idiots just happen to come off from the lower classes. But that's not classism. That's just, you know. You know, that's funny. I don't know if I've been around that much. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm learning now, Arthur, that you are definitely higher society than I am. That's your conclusion. <laughs> that's my conclusion. Yes. <laughs> I think, I think, I think that you're like, you know, maybe like a, a ninth removed heir to the throne of England or something like that. <laughs> Why? No, no, no. What about what about France? I, I know you've got connections there. No, I'm I'm actually technically Cameroonian royalty, although from a very small village in Cameroon. And I'm, I love this. I, no, I want you to know. I want, you to know, prince, I want but... you to know that a lot of people are doubting you right now. But I'm not. I this is how bad at subterfuge I am. I th- I think you're telling me the truth. I think that. Oh you, no, I am absolutely telling you the truth. Your family comes from kings of Cameroon. Is that what you're saying? So no. So this is this is in fact a trick that many people of uh, nobility in Cameroon will, will pull. Is that in fact if someone from from Cameroon mm-hmm. tells you that they are. Of royalty, uh-huh. most probably they come from nobility, right? Because every uh, tribe or village in Cameroon will have a king. Yeah, yeah. And then anyone who is remotely related to them uh, will be princes. Like this is not true everywhere in Cameroon, uh-huh. um, but it is true in in, in, a lot, in a lot of places. And so what happens is what would be considered small nobility if you came from another country is technically considered royalty. Um, right, right. So you have, you have like relatives who like sort of tribal leaders is what you're saying. Yes. So uh, uh, the, the king of Babu, which is a, a, a small village in Cameroon, is somehow related to me. Don't ask me how. I don't know. But there are records. That <laughs> I knew it. I'm feeling very pleased with myself <laughs> that I was able to uh, detect your royalty and call out and make you admit it here to everyone. You are you are absolutely high society in a way that I'll never be. No, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Maybe I just have more problematic friends. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. No, I think that there is something about, um, you know, I early on, I think with humor, like you'll see some of these Roman philosophers talk about uh, humor as something to be avoided because the, the idea was that uh, usually humor is, directed toward uh lower classes or people who were knaves or people it, it was it was in general humor was meant to insult and so if you were a, a real man of nobility you would avoid humor altogether and i think this is a kind of a a very rudimentary understanding of what humor is and what humor does but i think that what it calls out is that uh one of the primary purposes of humor is to elevate yourself at the expense of someone else. And I and I think that there might be a little bit of that with Tyrion here. That Tyrion does view himself as um, an, an elite mind, and anyone who would think that they have the wherewithal to fool Tyrion must be then shown to be a fool themselves. And I think he takes pleasure in that. 
Um, and I honestly, it's for my entertainment, and I, I kind of enjoy it. I kind of enjoy someone like Janice Slim getting his in the end. Yes, but perhaps we should consider what we're doing when we put Tyrion on a pedestal. Um, no, I, I agree. I absolutely agree. And I think that the chief slander that you could bring against Tyrion here is that at the end of the day, he knows that this man who he's ordered to be thrown off the edge of a ship for his murder of a baby mm -hmm. rightly deserved that murder, but he's got a number of men who would do a, a very similar things if he had commanded them. So he surrounded himself by murderers and sociopaths, and he's perfectly fine with that. Because he knows that that's what it takes to get things done around King's Landing. Uh, he, he doesn't necessarily have a problem with employing men such as Alardine. Although, I will say, um, to return, so I don't get murdered when I leave my house mm. next. Mm -hmm. um, Tyrion's diplomatic skills in this, um, in this chapter are absolutely beautiful. He... Every time he's like, what he does is all slowly and slyly provoke um, Jaina Slint. Mm -hmm. And every single time Jaina Slint is about to confront him about it, he changes the topic entirely and starts talking about something else. Um, yeah, he, he's, like, it's, it almost comes off as like he's already a step ahead in the conversation. Yeah, so now I'm going to talk about your spear. And now I'm going to question you about, oh, terrible thing that happened in the brothels. And it, Jane, Jane Slint really doesn't get the opportunity to be offended uh, by Tyrion's accusations. And that's a, an, an amazing diplomatic skill, being able to, to call out someone for doing something, but also not letting them be offended because you keep moving the subject. Well, in Janos Slint's defense, uh, he's pretty drunk. And Tyrion has made sure that he's <laughs> drunk. And so not only is Tyrion's mind... Uh, better than you know a, a, an average ordinary Janus Slint. It's certainly better than a drunken Janus Slint, and you know so Tyrion Tyrion knows well that what he's doing, and uh, it's it's no contest for sure. Um, Although Tyrion is is scared of Varys because we we were talking about classism and him making uh -huh. fun of Janus Slint, but he is scared of Varys because right at the end he's about to drink some wine and he puts the wine down because he remembers Janus Slint. When he's talking to Varys, because then uh, he understands that if he gets drunk and Varys, who also is lowborn, <laughs> right? And who he calls I Lord that. Varys, I without it. exception, even though, of course, Varys is not a lord, he uh, he needs to be careful. Well, he also threatens Varys in this chapter. Yes. And I think it's kind of done like tongue in cheek, but I, I do think that there's something about, you know, this is sort of the uh, the famous... You know, throw me overboard and I will absolutely paddle. You know, the big fish eat the little fish and I just keep on paddling, which, as you know well, Arthur, is the root evidence for the Varys is a merman fan theory. Which no, I'm it not. isn't. The, oh, Jim. no, absolutely. You don't know this? I yeah. love that quote, but I, 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 of course I know the merman <laughs> theory because of you, because you put it forward somehow every time he... Yeah, I, well, I love the theory. I, I, I'm a big <laughs> fan of it. I, I hope that it's true in the end. But yeah, no, that was sort of the first... I, there, there are other things, like, you know, you don't see his feet. Little spurious just crumbs of data that people have built this theory around. Uh, so I, I'm not, <laughs> I don't think it holds water, but I do think that it's a fun theory. Um, we would be remiss, Arthur, if we did not talk about this riddle that Martin has before, called the before most. Before we move on to the riddle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I really want to talk about the riddle because I think we could talk about it for hours. Just while we're on the topic of people getting drunk, um, I want to talk about wine in in Martin's world because it says that um, Jaina Slint is sloshing around his mouth. And in the Game of Thrones as well, it's very watery. It like splashes everywhere and people are drinking like it's nothing. So yeah. I'm just, is I know you talk to a lot of experts on me medieval times. Can you ask them if 
wine back then was just water because i don't understand the physics of wine it's a, it's a good question and i know a little bit about this but i will absolutely pose this to someone who's i actually know someone who's an expert on wines um oh, i don't know that i don't know him very well but i know him well enough to ask him this question so back in the day the, uh, elite folks would not trust the water um, especially if the water was coming from a, a source that made it taste weird or made it cloudy or something like that. And so wine was a way to avoid gross water. And um, and I think that in Martin's world, you have a lot of wine because most of the people we meet in this story are high society. And I think what Martin does is he will code lower society folks as people who are drinking something else like they're they're drinking beer or they're drinking like you know fermented goat's milk or something something else mm -hmm. wine is reserved for the wealthy folks of Westeros um so that that's my i guess that's my knee jerk take on this but it sounds like maybe you were thinking that it, w it was more significant? Um, no, I think it's just watery. Oh, it's just too watery, yeah. But this this may be because I'm influenced by the series and clearly they're not actually drinking wine, right? But it just, it it's try it looks to me like water, mm. what they're consuming. And it's, it, it, it oh, I, I see again, what you're like saying. It wasn't really wine. Oh, interesting. So, so that, that's a good question. Like, has has wine in general changed in terms of viscosity since the medieval mm -hmm. period? That's or has it, gone, has, has it gotten stronger since the medieval period? Yeah, interesting. I mean, there's wine and there's wine, right? There, 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 are, yeah. there are sort of wines that have better legs than other wines. Um, I, let, me ask, let me ask my buddy. I'll ask my buddy about this, and uh, maybe it'll make it into a future episode. Right. Um, or maybe one of our listeners is a an expert on the history of wine, and maybe they'll email me at book at baldmove.com. I do want to talk about the riddle. Yes. All right, so the riddle was posed to Tyrion in a previous chapter, but then it's brought up again in this chapter. And the basic is that you've got a king, a priest, and a rich man, and they all command some dude with a sword to kill the other two, and they all have a good reason for this, right? The gods are on the priest's side, and the, the rich man has money, and the, the king is the rightful lord of the, the realm. What is the cell source supposed to do? And of course, unfortunately... Tyrion doesn't really get a chance to answer this question. Varys basically answers it for him, and he says, Power resides where men believe it resides. No more and no less. So power's a mummer's trick? That's Tyrion asking. And Varys confirms, he says, a shadow on the wall. Yet shadows can kill, and oftentimes a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Um, do you think that this riddle says something true about power, or do you think that these two are kind of deceiving each other? I want to hear why you would think that they would be deceiving each other, because I think that's an interesting thing. Well, because, I mean, you could say that, um, that this is too cute by half. You could say something like, yeah, actually... Power is more simple than that, you know. There, there is, a, there is a sense of of belief that goes into political power, but when it comes down to like either you know brute murder, like the one we're talking about here, power is actually more simple than that. Uh, power is just brute force, and usually the person with more brute force wins the wins the contest. And it could be that this is something that Varys, because of his, you know, political uh, position, and Tyrion because of sort of his proclivities to use his mind instead of his arm, 
that these guys have convinced themselves of something like this, but it's a little bit too clever. Um, I think that's one way. I think that that's one thing that you could say. Now, I do. I do think that Martin believes this. I think that Martin wants this particular riddle to come off as profound and sort of guide his readers to understanding what's happening with the Game of Thrones. But what do you think about this? Well, as someone who studies politics, um, I very much went to university to try to figure out what power was, and I've left having no idea what power is. Um, do you think it's but, just a shadow on the wall? Look, here's what I'll say. In international relations, there's a thinker called Hannah Arendt. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yeah. Um, so she, she for me, is the best describer of what power is. Um, and she believes that power is when people act together to sustain or to change the world instead of being strength, right? So she doesn't, she thinks people are too often confused strength and power, which is what Tyrion does initially. Interesting. Right. And then I, I totally agree with, with when. Um, so when people, uh, this is Arendt's um, definition. She says, when people act together to. To sustain or to change the world. Okay. Interesting. So power doesn't rely on whoever has the, the, the biggest sword or whoever has the biggest weapon. In fact, it doesn't, for example, um, let's say you're a, because some people will say, well, no, sometimes the power can be one singular person despite him being completely outnumbered. And often they'll point to a dictator, right? But the issue is the dictator still needs a secret police to make sure that there's no dissent, right? And he needs the support of his own coalition of people who are going to keep him in power. He loses that, and it doesn't really matter who he is individually. Right? He, so uh, the power, power derives from the support of a core group of people. Uh-huh. Uh, so really, it's a people-on-people people thing. And so this is why um, I don't think... Uh, this is too cute by half. I think I think Varys is completely on the nose. So, all right. So, with Arendt's definition, there's a certain collectivity that's assumed, right? There's like mm-hmm. you need you need to have people that all kind of are pushing in the same direction, right? And yes. then the question is, how do you get a group of people to push in the same direction? And there's a lot of ways to do that, right? There's a, you you could you could have a charismatic personality that convinces them to push in a particular direction, or you mm-hmm. could can, you could um, convince people that their best interests, their own selfish interests, um, will be gratified if they push in the direction that a lot of other people are pushing. And I think that that's what capitalism does, for instance. Or you could convince uh, people that God wants you to push in this direction. You know, you can pump up a charity by saying God God will be happy if you give money to the poor. Um, so in all of these ways, you almost have to... Belief is kind of fundamental, but it's not just the belief of a single cell sword. It, it, it takes a lot of people to have a lot of political power. Absolutely. But again, I think... I think see- I think maybe framing it in that way where you say, okay, so power is about convincing people of something. That is when I disagree with Varys. So I think let's, let's look at Queen Cersei's power and, 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 and the power that Lannisters have, right? Uh-huh. The, the Lannisters are really good at creating a group of people that have power because they themselves have power, right? So a group of self-interested power, self-interested people who then keep everyone else in, in check, right? So you've got a, you've got the, the the mountain and you've got the hound and then you've got Lord Jaina Slint and and certain pain and all these people kind of rely on the Lannisters to protect them. And so they act accordingly. And that is truly the power of Tywin Lannister is really that core set of people that are gonna act for him and are gonna kill whoever needs to be killed in, in order to keep him in 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 power. Right. So so Iran makes the difference between power and violence, right? So she'll say that if you have true authority, you don't really need to be that violent, right? Because you've really 
amassed that much power, then you have a big, massive group of people that are supporting you. And then the least power you have, the more you you kind of lash out kind of in, in violence. But that's because you don't really have that power. So so Joffrey had no power when Eddard Stark was to be executed, well, was to be sent to the wall. And he kind of lashes out in violence. And I think that kind of shows to us that he has no power. And actually, we, we rarely see Tywin killing people left and right or lashing out in the way that maybe Joffrey will. And I think that, for me, is where you can see the difference between actual power and someone who thinks... So, all right, part of this, and I think I, this actually has a lot to do with Bran becoming king in the end. A lot of this has to do with the stories that we tell and the stories we think are true, right? So... For instance, why does Tywin have power? Well, he has a reputation, and people all have decided to agree that this particular precious metal is worth, you know, it's, it's worth a certain amount of currency, and they've heard stories about how he repays his debts, and that can be good or bad, and uh, so there, there's a certain amount of power that the Lannisters have because of their reputation. It's a story that we've chosen to believe about the Lannisters. Same thing with Joffrey. Everyone in King's Landing has decided to agree that the Lord of the Realm is the most powerful man. Now, that might not be true. You know, It could be that Tywin is the real power behind the throne, or it could be that Cersei's power over the king because he's the king. she's the king's mother. But in public... Everyone has chosen to believe the deceit that Joffrey is Lord of the Realm. They've all decided to buy into that story. And so when he calls for Ned's head, what can they do? You know, either they tell the king, no, go to bed, and and the lie is broken. And then how do you govern? Because you're governing with, with that story. Or you do what the king says. And in that case, he absolutely does have the power. Tyrion has power, yes, because people have agreed to believe the narrative about you know, what his family can do and all that business. In the end, he knows that it's a lie. It's a shadow on the wall. And if, he, if it is just about having a good story, if it's just about all kind of believing in the story of why the ruler should be ruler, then he can make it up. And he does. He does with Bran at the end. Tyrion decides to tell a different story about Bran Stark. And the story that he wants to tell about Bran Stark legitimizes his claim to the throne. So in the end, the Game of Thrones all kind of boils down to someone deciding to tell a different story. And I think that there's something kind of brilliant about that move. You know, Tyrion's really learned this riddle well at the end, and he's learned that as long as I can just cast a compelling shadow on the wall, people will absolutely get behind it. Uh, what you're saying reminds me of a funny comment I saw, because I now spend uh, too much time on YouTube Shorts watching uh, YouTube's version of TikTok. And I get a bunch of uh, a bunch of little clips of Game of Thrones, and one of them was about uh, the trial of Tyrion right at the end in, in yeah. season eight. And then when he, you know, he calls for for Bran to become king, and then I saw a comment go, "A king is sustained by a story, and who has or tells a better story than Bran?" And then the commenter goes, "Anyone, literally anyone." <laughs> well, no, and, and that's the way. That's the failure of the show to actually tell the story. Like he was, he was completely out of the narrative for the, the entirety for an entire season. So, yeah, uh, yeah. no, I, I think I think that they should have they should have told the story better. But I think that when Martin winds this to a close, to me that it's an interesting thing to look at the outcome, the end game, in light of this riddle. I so I agree with you that um it's 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 a mummy's trick, it's a shadow on the wall in the sense that it's not actually backed up by literal swords or it's not specific to a law. 
But then I disagreed with you in the sense that there is, it's not just a, a story, right? So I can't just propagate uh, the lie that I'm king, in the, king of the world and then eventually people are going to make me king, right? I need to build a coalition of people that are going to push me and sustain me as king, right? So if you look at Tyrion, one of the ways we see him and we kind of notice that he has powers because, oh, he's got Bronn inside and he's accumulating all these swords, And, oh, now he's replaced whoever is in power of the of the gold cloak. So he's, he's, he's collecting and accumulating a, a series of allies. Mm -hmm. And that's how he really gets power. And for me, that's, that's what power is. It's, oh, I've got the biggest coalition of people who are backing me and backing my cause mm -hmm. and not yours. And so by default, I'm more powerful than you. It doesn't really matter. Um, it's interesting. I, okay, so like I, I like to sort of game out politics in the real world too. I think that sometimes that, sometimes the, the story and the coalition around the story is paramount. And hmm. uh, so like, for instance, you could get, you can get people behind a particular kind of story. And, and we see this all over the world. We see the stories of nationalism um, being told. And, you know, the, it's, it's all basically the same story over and over. It's, it's that there are outsiders and they're, they're ruining your culture. And if you can just kind of, you know, if we can kind of band together and, and be proud of our heritage and defend it and defend it against the, the, the usurpers, then we can kind of get back to the golden age of when America was great. Yeah. When America was great or when, you know, when Britain was a, you know, something to be proud of, you know, something like those stories will absolutely tap into something, some sort of populist, uh, grievance. And you can kind of get people to rally behind that. You could also get people to rally behind, like, you know, things are unfair, you know, so you get, you get someone like, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, to, you know, sort of rise up and say, things are unfair. The, the, the system is rigged. Don't we need to fix the system? Uh, let, let's, that, that's a different kind of story to tell. And it will rally people. At the end of the day, those stories are a little bit less important to some really basic, stupid political decisions. And by that, I mean, like, which candidate is taller? Like, just, just some stupid lizard brain stuff like that. And I think at the end of the day, like, sometimes the, sometimes the story is important. And I think you get a lot of people, like, putting really, you know, getting paid a lot of money to craft a particular political narrative so that your candidate can campaign well. But at the end of the day, the person with the better smile usually wins. And I think that that's some mm. stupid lizard brain political <laughs> stuff that almost always, no pun intended, trumps the, all of the well-crafted storytelling. Yes. No, I think, I think I'm going to, I'm going to agree that, 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 absolutely those are massively big factors but i thought you were telling me that stories are what matters yeah i i think they do work sometimes like like you could get people like to push behind capitalism or you could get people to push behind marxism because that that particular story is what motivates them you can absolutely do that but at the end of the day it, you could argue that that's a little bit too clever and the, the candidate that usually wins is the is usually the more charismatic personality, and and the story, the story is almost secondary. It's not that it's unimportant; it's just that it's usually secondary. The the, the thing that I'm going to disagree with you on here is that I don't think power relies in a person because I think I think you're specifically thinking about uh, the context of an election. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming, and you're thinking about uh, an American type election where you have two candidates. Um, but I think you know if you look at the whole world, whole the whole U.S. is not the most charismatic person in the U.S. that's going to win an election, right? I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but no, I think to, that, to, but to I think that extent, people underestimate. I think I think people underestimate just how instinctual power is 
Like, mm. like, like it, it, sometimes it just comes down to like a base instinct. Like, who do you make chief of your tribe? Usually the tallest guy. And it's it, sometimes it's just it's something just as stupid as that. Or something as stupid mm. as, well, that person's father was king. I mean, that that's to me, that's just as stupid. <laughs> You know, so there's something about the the story that works, but at the end of the day, there's something more primal, more fundamental to to sort of human lizard brain mentality that will make someone like Robert Baratheon King because he has the best story. Mm. It's because he was taller and gregarious. That's why. That's why he was king. Yeah, I mean, you make a make a strikingly good argument. I um, I I would hit back that people tend to underestimate the coalitions between what they see as the big powers, right? So we so we tend to see, um, I don't I don't know Joe Biden, uh, or any other leader, and we tend to see, oh, okay, so that person has the power. Why do they have the power? What what is it about them? And actually. We fail to really question, I guess, what are all the factors that are holding them up? Who are the, all the people benefiting from that person being in power? Um, and so if you look at Robert's Rebellion, I'm thinking, oh, suddenly the North, the Vale, and uh, the Brathens are united in standing up against the king. And that's really what tips the balance, no matter how gregarious and strong. But I also entirely agree with what you're saying about uh, the primal instinct. So perhaps it's a bit of both. Let me ask you this question in this way. Do you think that Tyrion could ever be king? Yes, absolutely. I don't think he can. And I'll tell you why. Oh, interesting. I think he, I, I don't, because I think he's got, he's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of political savvy. He actually cares about justice, even though he sort of, he surrounds himself by men of ill repute. He does actually care about justice. Um, there's something about his stature that is just never going to work. Like, he just doesn't look like a king. There's something about his mismatched eyes that you, you just can't trust. There's something really stupid. There's something really stupid that, I don't know what to call it, but there's something really stupid about someone's physicality that absolutely keeps that person from becoming king. And I, I think in, in House of the Dragon, we saw that with Rhaenyra. It's like, yeah, maybe she would make a good queen. But there's just something really stupid about the mentality of thinking, eh, it doesn't look like a king to me. She's a female. You know, there's something about that that Tyrion's always going to have going against him. He's never going to be, he can be the hand of the king, but he's never going to be king. Because the gods have decided to make him a jape or something like that. Um, whereas you could imagine a world where Jamie's king or Tywin's king, or, you know, something like that. If, if things if things fall into place for for you know someone who's tall and good looking, um, you know, who's won a couple battles and they, so people are singing their praises, that that person could sit on the Iron Throne, where someone like Tyrion will never be able to sit. You could probably say the same thing about Varys. Would you ever make a eunuch king? No, absolutely not. And 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 the reasons why are kind of stupid. What about Bran though? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> what about what about Bran? <laughs> are you saying you don't believe Bran would become? I I know I think he will, but I you, man, you're gonna have to have a really good story. <laughs> You're gonna have you're a gonna, really good coalition. You have to have the really good coalition around Bran. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, it's a, it's a good point. It's a, it's a good it's a good uh, counter argument. Well, here's here's why I say why I join you because I think one of the things that I wrote down is I think it's a really good riddle, um, and I think it's a really good it's a really powerful argument that Martin is saying, and I understand why he he thinks it's the most important thing to come out of the books. But um, do you agree with that? Because I don't. I think the most important thing I learned from A Song of Advice and Fire is the, is the power of the individual. Interesting. Right? Because I think in, in studies of politics, especially in studies of, of uh, 
of international relations. Mm-hmm. There, there, there was a sense that beforehand we cared too much about the individual and actually we need to focus about what are really are the factors uh-huh. that are keeping a certain group of people in power except the other, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, if you look, a lot of data and you do a lot of reading makes sense. But the, the really strength of what Martin does is, is Martin to really show how one individual can have an outsized impact on really complex um, relations between different groups, different nations. Um, and I thought that was, that was the one thing that I took away from, uh, right. from his writing. Uh, yeah, no, I think, I mean, it, as long as you add to that, that, that a small group of people behind the scenes can prop up someone yes. uh, for that purpose. And that person actually needs to have a network of conniving folks behind the scenes to, to be able to sustain it. Right. That's what, that's what, that's what Robert did not have. Robert, Mm -hmm. Robert is a force of personality and yet he, he's not building the network that Tyrion is building in this chapter. Tyrion has, has decided I don't have any real allies here. I'm going to have to create my own allies. Right. And it, it might, might involve removing someone from power it might involve propping someone up and making them grateful to me, but Tyrion is kind of building his network from scratch in a way that right. Robert never would w- would be able to do. For sure, and Robert dies because he eventually he loses so many allies. He dies. Right? That's right. He gets killed, and, and he doesn't. He hates politics. Him. He he hates it, and and Tyrion, mm. as you noted, really loves it. You know, he really loves the seeing his plans. But I guess I was fruition. thinking more people like Jon Snow. Um, or Daenerys, because these are really people that seems to have an almost mystical capability yeah. of just making people sure. rise up and fight for them. Um, yeah, if you can come back to was... life, uh, or or command a dragon, <laughs> yeah, twice you can yeah, be a little yeah. bit shorter than the rest, and then that's okay, right? <laughs> but what does Tormund say? They think you're some kind of god. The man who returned from the dead. I'm not a god. I know that. I saw your pecker. What kind of god would have a pecker that's more? <laughs> right, that's that's a very lizard brain mentality from Torment. So, um, I, I want to talk about one other thing uh, before we wrap up. This chapter, I think, and I didn't catch it until this read, reveals a tiny bit about Varys that we didn't know. A tiny bit. Normally, you don't get anything revealed about Varys at all. But I'm going to read this little section. Okay. What are you, Varys? Tyrion found he truly wanted to know. A spider, they say. Spies and informers are seldom loved, my lord. But I am a loyal servant to the realm. And a eunuch, let's not forget that. I seldom do. And here's what Tyrion says. Tyrion says, People have called me half-man, yet I think that the gods have been kinder to me. I am small, my legs are twisted, and women do not look upon me with any great yearning. Yet I'm still a man. Shay is not not the first to grace my bed, and one day I may take a wife and sire a son. If the gods are good, he'll look like his uncle and think like his father. You have no such hope to sustain you. Dwarves are a jape to the gods, but men make eunuchs. Who cut you, Varys? When and why? Who are you, truly? The eunuch's smile never flickered, but his eyes glittered with something that was not laughter. That is the closest we get to seeing... Varys's true self. <laughs> His eyes glinted with something that was not laughter. It, and I don't know how to read it. You know, it could be that like Tyrion's getting too close and I have to conceal a little bit here. Or uh that actually hurts me a little bit that you would say that I'm I'm not a man, or I don't know how to read that, but Varys is such an opaque character. That just that little detail is the closest we're actually going to get to understanding him as a person in this story. I, another thing that I think is really interesting about that passage is 
I'm I'm really interested in in tolerance as a concept. Oh, well, um, sorry, tolerance. Tolerance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, just personally, my parents were um, an interracial couple, right, in in the '90s, and so they really had to 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 put up with with some things and some lack of tolerance, and we were really raised uh, to stay open minded. Yeah. And when new things arrive, to not kind of dismiss them just because it's new, and I think it's really interesting when people who have been discriminated against don't use it to draw a conclusion that tolerance is important, but kind of just are like, okay, well, any anyone below me, I'm going to attack them because I've gotten out. Like one of the most fascinating stories I found about uh, the USA is when you look at the waves of immigration in the late 19th and early 20th century, you've got like the Irish who arrive, and you've got the Polish, et cetera, et cetera, uh-huh. right? And every single generation that arrives in New York, whenever, like two decades later, a new generation from another nationality comes, you can find really good evidence of them attacking them. You're like, oh no, they are really bad. They're the ones who <laughs> yeah, rob everyone. Absolutely. And, who, and it's, and Tyrion's doing the same thing, right? He's saying, oh, well, you know, everyone's calling me an imp, but at least I'm not a you. Yeah, at least I'm That's not that. Worse. Yeah. Like, like I, yeah, exactly. Like I might be Polish, but at least I'm not Irish, or I, I might be Irish, but at least I'm not Italian. You know, it's, it's almost like the, the most base American idea of nationality, right? It's, it's, and I'm sure you can find it in other places in the world. Um, now, interestingly enough, right? So you say your your you were your parents are uh, of mixed race, right? Well, my 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 dad is from Africa, so he's a he's a black man. Yeah, and then my mother's from from France. So, so I lived in Zimbabwe for half a year, and what I learned, and I don't know if it's the same uh, in other places in Africa, but what I learned is that um, if you're mixed race, you don't belong to either of the other two. You know, in in America, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, we've decided um, if you're a mixed race, you're black. No, there's a there's a very there's a very uh, <laughs> there is a reason. <laughs> What's that? It's not whatever reason the the one drop rule. Yeah, yeah, the ru- right. yeah, yeah. Like- <laughs> the the one drop rule is the story around it, but but it's probably more yes. of a lizard well, the brain. Reason was racist, stupid right? reason, the reason, right? Was a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. But if you're mi- if you're mixed race, if if you're Trevor Noah, for instance, um, you don't belong in either world very comfortably. Um, you almost have a third race problem. Do you? Now, this is a very, very personal question. I, you you don't have to answer this at all. But uh, you have siblings, right? Yes. Do some of the siblings have darker skin than the other siblings? Yes. Does that at all factor into their way in the world, their being in the world? Does, does the does the color of just the shade of the skin have an impact? No, actually, in fact, no, I don't think it does. Although I will say, when we go to Cameroon, we get called white, and that blows the mind of every <laughs> single white person I know. They just can't get the ma- yeah. the the mind around the idea that in Africa I get called white. Yeah. Which I think is really funny <laughs> and really nice. Yeah, it's really it's like funny. yeah, but you're calling me black, and they're like, yeah, but you are black. I'm like, yeah, but I'm only half black, and they're like, no, but no. <laughs> It's the same thing. So I can do an Australian friend. Recently, uh, people of Asian descent have been uh, labeled as white in Australia. And uh, yes, <laughs> I just find that it's so great. Yeah. So yeah. so your race changes in Cameroon uh, versus uh, when you're in Europe. Yes. That's got to be a mind trip. Um. Yeah, it is. It, it is kind of depressing. It's like. Can we, can, can we like found the nations of the mixed race people so that we, I mean, there are, there are such nations that claim to be the nations of a, of, um, of a multiple of races, right? You've got a Haiti. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the, the rainbow nation of South Africa, although it's still quite segregated from the remnants of apartheid. Yeah. I was, I, I've also lived in Canada and the, you know, Americans claimed that they're a melting pot. It's not true, but. That's the claim. Uh, in distinction from that, I heard Canadians call themselves a stew. <laughs> they're, they're not a melting pot. They, things things don't actually melt into a singular nationality. There's distinct chunks within the 
than the the, the overall collective. That's probably it's probably um, closer to the truth than melting pot narrative. The the Londoners like to talk about the idea of a salad bowl instead of a melting melting pot. <laughs> why why are we always not, using not food metaphors for this? Thing. Honestly, I don't know why. But Anthony, I because I think the idea is that instead of kind of molding everyone to the same thing, you can kind of have the tomatoes and you can have the cucumber and anyway. Um, you can look it up for Notable introductions. We are introduced to Jacelyn Bywater, who becomes the new commander of the City Watch. Notable departures. Janos. Janos is now on his way to the wall, and Alardim is going to go overboard. He's kind of going to, on the way to the wall, they've decided to just drown him. And so both of those depart. Uh, one's a departure from King's Landing, and one's a departure from the narrative altogether. Um, and then book versus show differences. A lot of this winds up in the show. It's just framed differently. But the whole whining, Jano slant, sending him to the wall, that all happens in the shows as well. Uh, Alardim, I don't think he, I don't, I don't think he's in the show at all. I think he's a book only character Bywater as well right which i think is important in the show i think it's quite crude the way that Tyrion just makes uh bron the head of the, it doesn't make sense why would he become head of the city watch he would have no loyalty from his man he wouldn't work uh, right jasmine bywater that makes much more sense and i don't think Tyrion. well and we were just talking about how important stories are right so basically we hear a little bit of bywater's story he's he was valiant in battle. Yeah. He was knighted because of that. He lost a hand because of that. And of course, uh, Janos views him as a cripple because he's lost his hand. Um, sort of foreshadowing Jamie's story. But Tyrion's able to see that differently, right? He's 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 got a soft spot for cripples. Um can I can I plug something? Yeah. I, is that fine? No, absolutely you can. Yeah, I don't have a book. I am launching a little bit of a startup. And um, so it's called Kin Sports, K-Y-N Sports. K-Y-N Sports. The idea is to launch a platform that will broadcast women's sports. Oh. Uh, solely women's sports, because um, we know the women's sports is growing very quickly. And there's a lot of people who want to watch it, but it's really hard to find it. Honestly, it's not getting shown as much as it should be, considering how popular it is. Okay. Tell me about some of the women's sports that you enjoy. So I really enjoy boxing. Uh, so I think Katie Taylor is uh, probably the greatest uh, women boxer of all time. Okay, so let's say I want to watch Katie Taylor. I would go to kinsports.co.uk. I would go to that website. And that website would do what for me? How would that website be able to connect me to a Katie Taylor match? So today we don't have anything. Today we're trying to register people's interest and learn what they okay. want so we can provide that offer to people. Uh, but in the future, the idea is that you go on it and just like other uh, platforms that we have now that show sport, uh, like The Zone or GCN, people that, that know about this uh -huh. stuff. You go on it and then you, you kind of scroll and you find, oh, here's the Katie Taylor match or here's the, the latest uh, cycling uh, a competition that I want to watch that is women or my favorite uh, tennis player is playing. And then you can specifically watch that competition with your favorite athletes. That's there. a fantastic idea. Now, if people would like to register their support, how would they do that? They go to uh, kinsports.co.uk and then they click on the register your interest and just put your name and just put your email. And then if you're happy to answer a few questions or not, then we'll just keep your email and we'll update you so that when things become a bit more concrete. Then... Fantastic. And yeah, I'm happy to uh, also put that in a link in the show notes um, to make that easier for people to find that. That'd be great. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Um, I will let you know that I had, I, I guess it was a nightmare because I, I, I'm, I'm obsessed. <laughs> I'm obsessed right now with how 
this goes wrong. Like, <laughs> obsessed. Like, I mean, and I know I can get spoilers, but I'm like, I'm just like, what do they do? <laughs> like, how do they fuck this up? <laughs> so you had a you had a nightmare? Well, to the point now we're like, I can't wait to see how they fuck it up. <laughs> I. What was your dream? I've never anticipated something. I've never been so excited to see to be disappointed before. So the dream was I. I'm watching the final episode and it's all like, I'm in it. Like I'm just, I'm, you know, like in the scene and in it. So this is so a <laughs> final episode. This is the final episode of game of Thrones. The episode before the assumption is, uh, that, um, Danny has laid waste to everything. Uh-huh. She laid waste to everything. So everything is just, so you can't tell the difference between snow and ash at this point. And Tyrion's alive and he's just wandering. He's just wandering around. This is like, we don't know if it's months later, years later, he's just sort of, kind of lives in this wasteland and he you know kind of tries to collect food and eventually he comes upon this what looks like this this tribe of of uh you know kind of adolescents okay <laughs> it's very sort of post post apocalyptic yeah right and so he runs into them and he doesn't know what to do cuz they're armed and then they they bring him they bring him somewhere they they say we want to show you and they, there's a portal and they encourage him to go through the portal. He steps through the portal and ends up in modern day downtown London. <laughs> He's looking around and there's cars and there's a train station and he goes by the train station and he's just taking everything in dressed in his medieval garb. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he goes into this little, like coffee shop that's part of the train station uh-huh. and Jason Bateman is there. <laughs> okay. And he sits down with Jason Bateman and Jason Bateman just looks at him, sips his coffee. He's like, you found the portal. <laughs> that's the end of the show. <laughs> you know what? That ending would be better than what we got. <laughs> oh my God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> I would have been thrilled with that ending. <laughs>